This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. So glad to have you on a Monday drive where the Carolina Panthers lost a football game yesterday. It's the first loss of the season for them. And the entire story from Jerry World, I think, can be told through one stat. Now, those of you who've gotten to know me the last few years, been here now for over three years, longest-running local sports radio show in the history of the Piedmont, probably understand I'm not a big analytics geek, even though I'll acknowledge I look like one. I'm not the guy who's chopping up advanced stats and studying pro football focus every Monday morning like I'm sure our friend Brian Geisinger does. But sometimes one stat's all you need. And for the Panthers yesterday, that stat was third down. That's what lost them this game. Look, this game started very well for Carolina and then turned very quickly. And I think that's well represented with how Carolina did on third down. The way that they started going into the locker room with a halftime lead. It was not sustainable considering how far behind the sticks they were. On Friday, we gave out some keys. Sam Darnold had to be over 65% completion percentage. He did that. They had to try and bottle up the run. That did not go very well. But another thing that we talked about was manageable third downs. That's where you'd be missing Christian McCaffrey who'd be a great decoy on first and second down to help you get some yardage, catch a a pass out in the flat, get you into third and three, third and four. That's where Carolina has lived through the first three weeks, and that's why they've had a lot of success on third down. That was not the case early on. They converted four of their first five third downs, but three of the five were longer than 13 yards. 13 yards or longer to go. Those extensions... Those conversions, I should say, explain why the Panthers were in the lead despite all the heat that Darnold faced and the lack of pressure Carolina got on Dak. They converted those third downs, but watching it in the moment, it didn't feel like that was a very sustainable thing. You can't just continue to be that far behind the sticks and expect to convert time and time again. So when it inevitably flipped, it flipped hard. In the third quarter, which has been a problem for the Panthers even in the first three games that were wins, Dallas hammered Carolina. 23 unanswered points by Dallas. The score's 36-14. to Game over. I get Carolina battled back, and that's something you can applaud. But at that point, the game was over. And what decided the game in that stretch was Carolina, which again... And the first half, as it took the lead, was four for its first five on third down. Then went eight of nine, not converting. Had only converted one of nine third downs during that stretch. Dallas took over the game. Both Sam Darnold picks to Trayvon Diggs were on, you guessed it, third down. Here's Matt Rule describing how important that down was in deciding the game. And we were really good on third. When I looked at the stats at halftime, we were good on third down offensively and defensively, and I think that's why we had the lead. Um, you know, we had a hard time uh, uh, picking up some of their tw- – you know, they got a little more exotic in the third in the third quarter. We had a hard time picking some of those up. So, um, and just weren't quite able to connect on a couple of those plays. So that's one side of the ball. Carolina, how they did on third down. On the other end, though – At what point in the game did Carolina make Dallas feel uncomfortable? Specifically, Dak Prescott. There are two ways to get pressure. Either you're physically applying the pressure with a pass rush. Carolina didn't have any sacks yesterday, so I don't think that was it. Or you're bottling things up enough, keeping things in front of you enough, that you're being forced to convert on long third downs, or you're having a lot of third downs that you face. While Carolina was struggling on third down mightily 
in the third quarter. Dallas wasn't even getting the third down. In the five touchdown drives Dallas had in the game, they only had two third downs on those five drives. Five drives, long drives, ending in touchdowns. Only two third downs combined across those five drives. They didn't even have double-digit third downs for the entire game. The Panthers lost this game on third downs. That's the key stat for Carolina. On Twitter at WSJS Sports, if you want in, 336-777-1600 is the phone number. A historical day in NASCAR. Just now playing out. See if you can pull some sound for me here on this. Cole, where just in the last 20 to 30 minutes, the race in Talladega finished out with Bubba Wallace, a black man, winning the race. It sounds like you have found some sound here. And after the race, he was asked about the historical significance of it, him being the first black driver to win in the Cup Series since 1963. Winning in Talladega, this is already a big week in motorsports. This week getting set for the Roval in Charlotte next Sunday. We were talking about that last week. But Talladega, because of weather, things getting pushed and They had to finish that race today. It just wrapped up, and Bubba Wallace was in victory lane. He's inched close so many times. It's a massive career achievement for him, but it's massive for NASCAR, too, because of that historical significance. Here was his response to learning of that significance in victory lane. I want to know what it means to you, the second African-American, first since Wendell Scott, to get to victory lane at this level yeah i never uh i never think about those things and when you when you say it like that it <laughs> it's obviously brings a lot of emotion a lot of joy to my family fans uh friends it's pretty damn cool so just proud to be a winner in the cup series 60 years or so since that happened 1963 was the last time when wendell scott won and Apparently, he won the race in Jacksonville. And he won the race easily to those who were there and watching it. I don't know how much video you can find of it. But he was not declared the winner of the race until hours later. Unbelievable what's playing out in NASCAR right now. You knew it was probably going to happen eventually with Bubba. A rising star in the sport. But it's different. It's not a deal where it's just somebody who's only going to be recognized for their race but not their merit on the racetrack. Nobody ever conflated that, I don't think, with Bubba or anybody in good faith having these conversations. So to see him win, that's a really cool deal. And he's just the second black man that's ever won a cup race. And he does it in Talladega, driving a car that's owned by one of the most well-known black men in the history of the world, Michael Jordan. Unbelievable. History playing out in Talladega today. I want to talk about Wake football. Speaking of history, I was out at Truist Field. The Deeks won 37-34 over Louisville on Saturday. It came down to the wire. But... Wake won the game. They are 5-0. and They are the highest-ranked team in the ACC at number 19. And I felt when the game was really close, the experience Wake has and the amount of growth they displayed was the difference in Wake winning the game. And let me try to express where that's most apparent. If you think the Deeks 5-0 start is completely out of left field, this is just random. ACC, hashtag go ACC, random stuff happening here. Just consider this. I don't think it's a coincidence Wake has taken a step this year because of what makes this year different 
than past years we've seen in college football. Last season did not count against the eligibility of anybody who played. So teams are older than they normally are. And Wake Forest, in normal circumstances, usually wins because they're older than most of the teams that they play. It's part of Dave Clawson's strategy. When he arrived in Winston-Salem, he began redshirting every single class he brought in. Everybody who came in was going to redshirt for a season, so that way we have you around for a long time, and we're older than our competition. If we're not going to beat you with talent, we're going to beat you with experience, we're going to beat you with our brain, we're going to beat you with straight scheme. That's what we're going to do here. We're not going to beat ourselves. We're going to be smart, and older teams are generally smarter than younger teams. This team has six sixth-year players on it. 20 starters back all together from a year ago. That's why Wake Forest has taken a step this year. And I felt in past years, that's a game that Wake Forest loses. What we saw Saturday, Wake had it in their grasp, then the quarterback throws an interception. Sam Hartman throws a pick. At that point, it's 34-31. There's close to 10 minutes left to go in the game. In past years, I think that goes poorly for Wake. And I'm not the only person who thinks that, Cole. Listen to Dave Clawson after the game saying that he had the same thought that this is something that would cost us in past years. I don't know a year ago if that's something he could have done. And the second he threw the pick, I looked at him and I'm like, he's fine. He moved on, he, you know, he knew it wasn't a good ball, a bad decision, and he knew it. And there was no uh, emotional reaction. He didn't lose his temper. I looked in his eyes, he knew it, and, I, you know, I didn't say a word. You could just tell um, that he was over it already. So I, I give him a lot of credit for that. I don't know a year ago if that would have happened. No. Last year, we saw this. He was in Charlotte. It's the Dukes-Mayo Bowl. He threw an interception in the second half. Game was 21-21 tie. And the next three possessions, he threw interceptions, and it cost Wake the game. Hartman was talking with guys like Eli and Peyton Manning about it at the Manning Passing Academy and talking to Jake DeLome about it when he was down there as well, picking the brains of those players. How do you get past that? And the growth was on display when he threw a pick in a big spot. Clawson sees in his eyes that he doesn't even need to talk to his quarterback about it because he's passed it, and then he demonstrates on the field. 34-34 tie. He is past it. 11 plays, 60 yards, gets into field goal range for Nick Skiba, who's a historically good kicker now. In 2019, he beat Florida State almost by himself. Five field goals to give Dave Clawson his first win against the folks from Tallahassee. He said after the game on Saturday that a few years ago, he would feel nerves in big spots. Understandably so, if you're a kicker. Now he doesn't even feel it as the NCAA FBS career record holder for the highest made field goal percentage ever. That's that's Nick Skiba, and that's what Wake has here. Experience and growth, those are things that were on display, and they won a game that in past years they generally lose. It's massive for them because I don't know when the next loss is on the schedule. I honestly don't know where that is. Since they play at Syracuse, who just lost to FSU, then they have a bye. Army, win, lose, or draw, that's not going to affect their chances in the ACC. It's Duke at home. North Carolina, that's a non-conference game. NC State coming to your house. I like the way the schedule is shaking out for the Demon Deacons, who are unbeaten at 5-0. and the chamber of doughy pale bodies and they said you're their president you're on the drive with josh graham on wsjs sports i don't know if this song will get urban meyer out on the dance floor but it would get matt rule out on the dance floor rule is a huge dave matthews band fan 
being joined now by Brian Geisiger in studio. He doesn't strike me as somebody that cares much about DMB. Is that a bad assumption? I would say I'm largely indifferent. How about that? That's yeah. That's Not a, a very fan, kind, but if you're into it, that's cool. Kind diplomatic answer yeah. by uh, Brian Geisiger. Follow him on Twitter at bguys underscore bird. ACCsports.com. You could see a lot of his ACC coverage. I want to talk about hoops with you because we got out precise the guy in said a few minutes. Tonight, though, it is the Hornets opening up their preseason in Oklahoma City, 8 o'clock tonight. I see a lot of Hornet fans saying it's postseason or bust this year, but I'm, I think we might have talked about it this summer. I'm not completely sure that the, the Charlotte Hornets have improved their roster this offseason, and if yeah. they haven't improved their roster, I still see a scenario where they can have a good year and take steps without making the postseason. What say you? I agreed. Also, the people that think this is postseason or bust, or, or bust like I, I get it because they haven't been in a couple of years and, and Gordon Hayward's on a big contract, and so there's maybe some urgency to get back to the postseason now, but they have LaMelo Ball. Um, he turned 20 about six weeks ago, so <laughs> it's not postseason or, or bust. It's the future is now for sure. Yeah, and like you should be trying to uh, compete right away. And also build something sustainable around that young star for the next decade plus. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in New Orleans now with, with Zion, where perhaps that's maybe unraveling a little bit because they have not been good the last two seasons, um, the first two of Zion's career. So, yes, there, I think there is a, an urgency to wanting to like get good and stay good around LaMelo. Um, and the presence of Hayward's contract and the extension with Terry Rozier but ultimately, like I think this team is at best like in the play-in scenario range, which is essentially where they were a season ago. The East got better, so if they, even if they fall short of that, it would not be good. But man, another lottery pick on this roster wouldn't be the worst thing in the world either. So um, you got to remember that too. The they could end up losing a first-round pick depending on where they finish uh, in the standings this year as well. But no, lots of excitement around the Hornets. I don't want to temper that. I think they're a team that could make the playoffs. I just think they're more likely to be in that play-in scenario. A lot of stability in Charlotte that you don't get in other places. If you, Since you brought up Zion, how many coaches has Zion have, had since arriving? This will be his third, in his yeah, third season. Third in his third season. Management there is kind of a mess. Charlotte has had the same general manager for a handful of years, and I saw this stat from over the weekend that there are only five NBA coaches who have been in their current gig longer than James Borrego has, yeah. who started in 2018. Yeah, I was going to say, that says more about like the state of the NBA than it does Coach JB. And look, I, I, I love James Borrego. I think he's a very good coach. Um, and and you know he sh he's in place. He should be here for some time now. And it's very cool to see him sort of developing a relationship on and off the court with LaMelo Ball. You know, being at LaMelo's camp this summer, I think that stuff matters for sure. But, yeah, it says more about how quickly a turnover in the coaching uh, ranks is if that guy is one of the top you know, six or seven longest-tenured coaches uh, in a 30-team uh, NBA. Yeah, and those coaches, right off the top of my head, Steve Kerr, Pop, Pop Spo, yeah. uh, Mike Malone in Denver, and mm -hmm. I am for Quinn Schneider at Utah. Yeah, those these are, are the all, all those guys are uh, they have won championships, like have either won championships – or won like NBA Coach of the Year awards, or been number one in, in their conference, yeah. like Utah was last well, year. Well, I believe Quinn Snyder. Snyder. I think Snyder's been Coach of the Year at some point. Too. JB got to win that award eventually. It, it, it'll happen if Lamelo keeps taking steps. Hey, let's play out precise the guys while we got BG here. Cole stepping in for Robert this week. Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. All right, Cole. You got three questions here. Are we doing another randomizer this week? Yep, we are doing another randomizer that me and Robert made last week. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So that means you just search. You you have this page that just gives you three current NBA guys, and then you find a stat about that particular person. Who's the first player? All right, starting off, we're going to go with Iguodala. 
most famously played and won a finals MVP with the Golden State Warriors, but he cut his teeth while in Philadelphia. Yeah, he did. How many more points did Iguodala score in Philly than in Golden State? Interesting. And now he's back at Golden State this year. Uh, Are we talking about points per game or total points? Uh, total points. I used to love watching Andre Iguodala play for Philadelphia all those years. Yeah, I, I really, I preferred the Golden State version of him as him like this, like a badass role player on this all-time historically good team. Um, but yeah, Philadelphia was was cool too. Um, I will say, I'll say four thousand. I've got ten thousand. That's probably overshooting it. Uh, he had 9,422 in Philly. Oh. 2,996 in Golden <laughs> State. Go. <laughs> so the difference is 6,426. There you go. BG with a one nothing. I won last week. I've never won this back-to-back weeks, and I'm not off to a good start. What's the next player that you dug up? All right. Uh, next up, we got Joe Harris, who's quietly Ooh. been one of the better shooters in the NBA. Wahoo wah. Yep. Last year, he had a .654 effective field goal percentage despite attempting the most three-pointers in his career. What was his three-point percentage? Um, Joe Harris's three-point percentage. I'm going to say 42.5%. I've got 42 right on the nose. All right. His three-point percentage is 47.5%. Oh, who's your favorite? There we go. Tony Bennett era Virginia Cavalier. There's a lot of good ones to choose from. And Joe Harris turning himself into, like, modern J.J. Redick in the NBA is really, really cool. And he's set up, obviously, to have a, a big season this year. I'm probably partial to DeAndre Hunter. Um, you, I really, really. I remember DeAndre. going to games with you that DeAndre Hunter was playing it, and you were just nerding out. You almost had a crush. It was pretty obvious, like you had a basketball crush on DeAndre Hunter when you watched. Uh, huge. I mean, he looked like he was built in a lab to play basketball. Like six, eight, seven, two wingspan. Um, and he had a really nice sophomore season in the NBA this year. He just couldn't. Uh, well, last season for the Hawks. So if that guy stays healthy. He's a guy that can make a couple of All Star games and really, you know be a nice sidekick next to Trey Young uh, with the Atlanta Hawks. So I love DeAndre Hunter. I loved his fit in Tony Bennett's system on both sides of the court. And like we, the 2018-2019 ACC basketball season is one of the like special years for a conference in college hoops history. You have the national champion, Virginia Cavaliers. You have 10 first round picks, a third of the first round. Three number all, one seeds. All three number one seeds all come from the ACC, and I'm thinking I think they must have had six or seven lottery picks. Like almost half of the lottery uh, came from the ACC that season. Three Duke guys: Kobe White, Cam Johnson, DeAndre Hunter. Um, yeah, and then later in the first round, you also had Nikhil Alexander Walker out of Virginia Tech. You had Ty Jerome out of Virginia. Um, yeah, just really a special season of, of basketball uh, in the ACC. Favorite to watch, probably Malcolm Brogdon for me. He was awesome. Uh, favorite to deal with from a media perspective, Mamadi Diakite, who is always tremendous to talk to. What's the last player you got for us? And out precise, the guy's Fiji's already beaten me. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, with the worst luck out of the bunch, let's go with Dennis Schroeder, who is our final randomized <laughs> basketball player. Where is Dennis Schroeder now? Boston. Okay. He wow. fumbled the bag on, en route to Boston, but yeah, he's, in, he's a Celtic now. Okay, so uh, Dennis Schroeder's best statistical season came in 2019 when paired with Chris Paul in Oklahoma City coming off the bench. How many games did he actually start that year in OKC? Seven. Seven? Ooh, I'd put Christmas time too. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it because I've got the win either way. I'll say seven though. I got 12. He actually only started two games that year in OKC. Because that's the year Chris Paul went vegan. Yep. And he was very healthy. Also, it's a shortened season too. You got to remember that as well. Um, but yeah, that Thunder team was really, really cool and featured one of my favorite backcourts in modern NBA history because you have Chris Paul, 
You have Shea Gilgis Alexander. I was about to say that's before the trade. Big time after the trade. Big time star on the rise. Like SGA was awesome last year and is just set up to have an amazing season, an amazing career. And then Schroeder, just like the ultimate like you know speed guy off the bench. Really fun, fun uh, combination of players. A lot of NBA talk in this segment. Fitting because again, the Hornets tip things off later on tonight. Fittingly against the Thunder. Against the Thunder. Worked out well. That was all planned right there, 100%. I do want to talk about my observations watching Wake scrimmage over the weekend at the Joel Coliseum. That's before Wake Forest had proved to 5-0 and with a win against Louisville on the football field. But uh, before we get to that conversation, who is the favorite to win the Atlantic uh, Division? Brian Geisiger is in studio with us. We'll discuss that next on The Drive. A man you all know and tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Brian Geisinger from accsports.com in studio with us. I was out at Joel Coliseum this past weekend, out at the Joel, watching... uh, the Wake basketball team scrimmage. I'll tell you a few observations. I found interesting watching the Deeks in just a few minutes, but here's a question I have. Wake Forest is unbeaten right now. They are 5-0, and only ACC team that is 5-0, highest-ranked team in the conference at number 19. Are they for sure, though, the front-runner to win the Atlantic Division? 336-777-1600 on Twitter at WSGS Sports. Because as much as I believe Wake is the best team in the ACC, and I do believe that, I think they demonstrated that in the first month, I can't in good faith say they're the favorite to win the Atlantic right now just because of the way that the schedule shakes out. When you look at it, BG, Wake, they still have to go to Clemson, they have to go to Boston College, they have to play NC State at home. North Carolina, that's a non-conference game, so we'll eliminate that from this conversation for now. I think Wake's the best team. I have a problem with that. Meanwhile, counting out Clemson, I think, would be foolish. They won against BC, even though they have no business being ranked in the top 25 right now. They go to Pittsburgh in a couple weeks. Right now they have a bye. I think that offense is only going to get better. The question is just how much. And then NC State has landmines all over the place. I get Dave Doran said the curse is broken, but We've seen enough NC State stuff to believe at BC, at Miami, at Wake, none of those are gimmies. North Carolina in a potential spoiler role, not a gimme either at the end of the regular season. So I spell all that out as a way to kind of pitch it to you or throw the alley-oop up. I can't in good faith name an Atlantic Division favorite. Can you? I no, I don't. I don't think you can. I think the numbers support that too. Even if you, I mean, you just, you just rattled off the records and schedules. But even if you go to, you go if you pull up ESPN and you pull up their like that, you pull up their FBI FPI numbers, their mm-hmm. football power index. They can give you one of the things they'll give you based off of that is a what what like the odds of certain teams winning the conference and winning the division. And right now, Pitt is an overwhelming favorite to win the coastal in the ACC. It's pretty split between Clemson, NC State, and Wake Forest. They're giving they're giving NC State slightly better odds than both Clemson and Wake Forest, but it's all close. Like Wake's got like a twenty one percent chance. State and Clemson are like in the you know mid thirties or, or like low forties. So it's it's all close. It's all bunched up. But right now, like Pitt is in is like well ahead of everybody in the coastal, and they're in the driver's seat. And uh, and it's a, it's just right now it's a, it's a it's a jump ball in the Atlantic. How if Pitt ends up winning the coast, which is the opposite of how things normally are in the in the league? Yes. How do we celebrate as a radio show if Pittsburgh wins the coastal? Because I was the one guy out of the 150 voters in the preseason that picked Pitt to win the coastal. Do we throw a parade? Do we welcome Pat Narduzzi on? Like what's you get a, a a cameo appearance from Kenny Pickett. That's what we need to do. Yeah. We already got it from Armando Baycott. I'm going to test Cole and see how well he can find things on his computer very quickly. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll... Armando. Pretty good. There, he good. did out precise the guys really well. I was getting ready to filibuster for him if he needed it. 
But, yeah. But he was right there. Uh, I mean, like, side note, but, man, Kenny Pickett has been unbelievable. 14 touchdowns in the last three games. Uh, he broke a record set by Dan Marino. He's decent. For the, for the most touchdown passes in a three-game stretch in program history. That reminds me. <laughs> I, Not bad. The only time I've ever talked to Dan Marino was in Winston-Salem. Pitt clinched their first-ever ACC Coastal Championship in Winston. And Dan Marino was just walking on the sidelines, and he knew somebody that I knew, and we were just kind of having a thing, and we were talking about this pit team. And Dan Marino, I thought he was kidding. I, I still think he was kidding. He said, I think that quarterback might be better than when I was in college. He just kind of, it was a throwaway line in 2018. Well, Pickett's getting a lot of draft uh, attention now. I also believe uh, in, a, in a small world occurrence here, I think... Dan Marino, a kid of his, child of his, went to School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. Wow. I believe that's true. I am not going to fact check that. I'm just going to say it is true. Yep. Courtesy of BG. Brian Geisiger is here in studio with us. Now let's get to Wake's practice. Getting a chance to watch it, and granted, this is just based on things I've been texted and been told and people that I speak to and just what I saw in about 30 to 45 minutes scrimmaging. Jake LaRavia, I think, is going to be Wake Forest's best player. He's a problem. That's something a coach told me yesterday from Wake uh, or a support staff member. He's a problem. There's these secret scrimmages that apparently happen where, guys, you can't really stop them from playing basketball against other people in the area. But I remember one of the coaches for the teams, uh, one of the coaches of the players that scrimmaged each other, was talking in the locker room with these guys or in the program, and it came up. Who's pretty good on Wake? Oh, LaRavia. This guy, he's the real deal. And they want him to play either the three or the four when last year he has the height and Wake didn't have the depth in the post. There might be times he plays at the five. He looks every bit the part. He's the Indiana State transfer. That's a player that you circle twice when you look at how improved this team can be. A lot of new incoming players. That's the first guy I go to. Yeah, well, that 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 hybrid forward that everyone wants, right? Six eight can be a three and a half, essentially float between the three, float between the three and the four. If I can uh, talk here, but gives you enough shooting and enough rebounding and enough just like you know mismatch scoring because you know if you put a smaller guy on him, well, you know he can work in the mid post a little bit. Bigger guy on him, he can perhaps spot up and, and attack closeouts and and, and go by him. Um, and they already have a guy on the roster like this with Isaiah Musius, who, mm-hmm. who who offers like a, a a package of skills that's similar to that, right? Like a, a guy that's a three and a half essentially can score from a couple different levels of the court, can shoot the three, but also has like a as a nice little like ISO mid post game. The one bummer is like the injury to Damari Monsanto, who a big time transfer that was coming in from East Tennessee State that would have given Wake another guy like this. I was told he'd be a starter on this team. Yeah, I mean he was one of the best spot up players in the country last season. I watched a fair amount of ETSU film ETSU film prior to the injury with Monsanto because I was like, I want to be ready for this guy when he hits the court in the ACC this year. And unfortunately that's getting shelved for a year. But he's he he's six six. He could really shoot. He can score so, like, yeah, would have given Wake another one of these hybrid players that can step out, hit a jumper, and score one-on-one. Um, but, no, with LaRavia, with Musius, you like those guys with a good backcourt with Witt and uh, with Carter Witt and Davion Williamson, Alanis Williams, that can give them a guy that can put pressure on the rim, which is something they desperately need out of last season. Like, Wake was, among ACC teams, one of the worst at getting to the rim in the half court, and that opens up everything else. Right, that, that you, you put pressure on the rim – that gets you to the free throw line. That gets you layups. That gets you dunks. That gets you kick out threes. And having a guy like Williams to transfer in from Oklahoma, who is a is a big time north south driver. Like I kind of like some of the pieces Wake has this year. It's why I'm more bullish on them. Maybe not. I I know you like Wake this year as well. But just like Forbes is a really good coach, man. They've upped the talent level and they've got guys that can like fit together and you can build a cohesive offense. Around. Didn't we just see this movie in Blacksburg? hey, here comes a really good coach from the Southern Conference, and he jump-started things and made the team competitive suddenly. Now, I'm not saying Wake Forest is going to jump in year two like Mike Young jumped in his second year, and they ended up a, a double bye in the ACC tournament. Yeah. But the best example of how much they might have grown 
Two guys I like a lot that you talked about there. Zay Musius, Carter Witt, mm-hmm. as good as they are, it's not a guarantee. It wouldn't shock me at all if those guys aren't coming off the bench. Like, if those guys are coming off the bench, that speaks to a lot of talent that you have because you do have Alondis Williams, who, as good as Jake Laravia is, he might be the leading scorer because of his ability to get to the rim. It's Davian Williamson, who I think we saw, case in point, what he's capable of doing, looks a lot thicker than the guy I saw last year. You mentioned how important that was for Cam Hayes and, and yeah. Raleigh last week. Yeah. I think you're seeing that with Davian, too. Then if Laravia is playing the three and they want to play a bigger lineup with Kadeem C from uh, from from Ole Miss and Dallas Walton, a seven-footer from Colorado, Tariq Ingram factored in there somewhere, too, coming back from injury, mm-hmm. that might very well be the lineup. This is flexibility Wake didn't have last year. Yeah, it's the, it, like I do think they're going to miss not having like a like a Jonah Antonio shooter to run around screens. Like he was he on the sneak, he had a really nice season for Wake last year. And you miss a guy like Ismail Masood, who good pick and pop player, good spot up player. But, now at Kansas State, yeah. But now you have a guy like Laravia who can come in, or Musius can can float around at a couple different more different positions too. So you have some of that that versatility, even if you're going to miss some of the the offensive weapons they had from a season ago. Um, I know we're talking Wake, but you brought up Virginia Tech. Yeah, I love Mike Young as a coach. I, I think Mike Young, like if you had to win one game. Like the aliens have invaded Earth. You got to win one game. You could pick from any of the ACs, the fifteen ACC coaches. I might take Mike Young actually. Over K. I think Mike Young is like that good of a coach. Yeah, like if you if like I think if you gave, Tony Bennett, you, like these are again Leonard Hamilton. These are all really good coaches. I just think like his adjust, his work as from game to game, half to half, making adjustments, making like individualized game plans. For All right, let opponent, me let me mine your. Brain I think right. are I think are the best in the ACC. Well, let me mine your brain so I know exactly what you're thinking when you say something like that. Give me a specific example of something you saw Mike Young did last year where you thought masterclass coaching. It, there's, it's like it is. I think largely speaking in college basketball, the amount of like game to game adjustments is a little underwhelming. And I don't feel that way with Virginia Tech. I feel like they have something, without getting into like specifics, I feel like they have something that can be cooked up differently based off of whomever they're playing. So one night you got something cooked up for a team that's going to switch like Florida State. Two days later you're playing Georgia Tech. They, 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 uh, they change all of their defenses. They play 1-3-1. They, they play matchup zone. They play man-to-man. Virginia Tech has stuff to go at all of those things. They are one of the best at using off-ball movement, off-ball screens to free up shooters. They scheme open shots in Mike Young's system. He did it at Wofford. He's doing it in the ACC. But Tech is not just like, you know, it's not just X's and O's with them, man. They've got some really good players. I love Tech's starting five this year. Storm Murphy factored Storm Murphy, he transfers in. Really good addition at the guard position, but you've got Nahima Lean, excellent shooter that can run around and hit jumpers coming off screens. Hunter Couture is one of the most underrated players in the country. Two-way wing that can really shoot. Justin Mutz, Keve Aluma up front. Like, those pieces fit so perfectly. Um, and, and Young's a great coach. So I love them from, like, a shot chart perspective. They take a lot of threes. They target the rim. They've got good players, good talent, good scheme. I just think they're a dark horse to really, like, assuming they're healthy this year, really win a lot of games and, and be a threat in the ACC. Could they be the biggest threat to Duke, who I assume is going to be the preseason favorite to win the league? They could, but a lot of other teams can make a case, I think. I think you can make a case for, for UNC. I think you can make a case for uh, UNC, for Florida State, um, and certainly for Virginia Tech. Like, I think all of those teams, you can you can build a case, or a pretty compelling case that says – this team has the chance to, you know, win the ACC regular season or or make a run at the ACC tournament or, you know, get to the the second weekend of the NCAA tournament or, or whatever it is. But I think there are several te- – that second tier of the ACC is really, really good. Um, it's just going to be curious to see which of those teams sort of, like, plays a little bit above, like, what maybe we expect them to this Success year. is relative from program to program. So when I say Wake Forest is going to be the surprise team in the ACC – I'm not saying they're going to be a contender, but Wake hasn't finished better than ninth in the ACC since Dino Gaudio was fired, and they've only been top 10 twice, most recently with the John Collins season in 2017 when they made it to the first four. I don't think top 10 in the ACC is out of the question for Wake 
What do you view the ceiling for Steve Forbes in year two? And I should also throw Notre Dame into that mix as well. Very, very good offensive team. That could Notre Dame could have the best offense in the country this year, or at least like top five, top ten. But defensively, they're going to be a bit of a mess. Yeah, Wake, I think they can play themselves out of that bottom third of the league. I think that 10 mark is a great spot. And if you do that, it means you're probably not an NCAA tournament team, but you've like, you are a competent team. You're going to win some games. And you maybe you put yourself in the bubble conversation. I don't think they're there yet. But why not make it back to the NIT? Why not win some some conference games this season? Um, Forbes was brought in to up the talent of this program to make them better defensively, which they were always a mess under with Danny Manning as the coach. And you know, the defense was not very good last year. But last year was tough for a lot of different reasons. This is a, a rebuild. It's going to take some time. But you, we just talked about all the transfers that came into the program this year. I think it's very obvious to see that the talent level, while not where Forbes probably like wants it long-term to be, but it's just noticeably better than it was a season ago and probably where Wake was two years ago. We're a month away from the start of college basketball season. As I mentioned earlier, NBA preseason starting tonight with the Hornets facing the Oklahoma City Thunder. Next week, we're going to be in Charlotte for ACC tip-off, the media days. BG! It's good to have you in here as always. We'll see you next week. Sounds good. That is Brian Geisiger hanging out with us. Follow him on Twitter at BGeis underscore Bird. Although his mind is still as sharp as ever, he occasionally has trouble seeing small print and needs the assistance of a handheld ferret to read letters. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. We've got Graham's grades in a minute. Thanks to all the folks who came out to say hello Friday night at the Carolina Classic Fair in Winston. You can still go out to the fair. Cole, you need to figure out a way to get there. I know you're an Elon student and such, but it's a whole lot of fun. You have all the things you would expect at a fair. I wanted to see how normal it felt. It felt pretty close to normal to me, and we had a lot of fun. Gave out some tickets, gave away some Beamer Tire vouchers, and it was really cool to meet a lot of people. One of them even gave me a stuffed koala. So I have a stuffed koala bear that whoever gave it to me, son named Nick. So welcome to the family, stuffed koala Nick. Intern Nick didn't appreciate it much. He got really jealous when there was a more important Nick amongst us there. It was great, though. They they had a setup called right across. See, there's the entrance there on the fairgrounds. And then we're off to the left right there where the beer garden's at, which is new this year. They haven't had the beer garden in the past. And there would be a ton of people cycling through because it is close to the entrance, but also because... The animal exhibits were catty corner from us where they would have these shows with big-ass bears doing things, like real bears catty corner from us. We didn't have anything that exciting. It was me, Nick, and we had some tickets and candy. That's, that's what we had competing with bears and dogs catching frisbees and a guy with the thickest southern draw you've ever heard yelling while some pigs raced. Good old Carolina Classic Fair. Strongly suggest you going out to the fairgrounds at some point this week. Yes, Cole? Uh, did you end up getting something to eat at the fair? Got some barbecue, man. Oh, I got some barbecue. And it was good. It's one of those deals. So friendly, everybody. They'll look at you and say, What you want? Barbecue? Gotcha. What you want on the side? Got mac and cheese? Yup. Got mashed potatoes? Yup. Can I have a drink? Sure. Go go fix yourself something in the back over there. You got Coke? Nope. We got Pepsi. Mm-hmm. It was so good, man. Really did appreciate that. Uh, the barbecue, the nice folks, the fair all together. Right now, let's play Graham's Grave. Every week is a test for your favorite sports teams. We don't need no education. 
Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Time for Graham's grades. A through F. The very good to the average to the very poor of what we saw in the NFL with the Panthers and also broadly in the ACC. Let's start with the very good first. A. DJ Moore and Pitt Panther football. DJ stats were unbelievable. I was sitting next to somebody watching these games yesterday at a sports bar off Haynes Mall Boulevard, and he had DJ Moore on his fantasy team. Happy camper. 113 yards on eight catches with two touchdowns. He was unbelievable after the catch, making people miss left and right. He was the best wide receiver on that field. I know C.D. Lamb gets all this hype, and because Amari Cooper's a cowboy, he's propped up a lot more than I think he would be if he played for the Jaguars, let's say. D.J. Moore is a top 10 receiver and the best receiver out of those two teams, and he proved it yesterday. Pitt Panthers-wise, it's our pick. We picked them to win the Coastal, and they are the overwhelming favorite right now to win the Coastal Division. Blew out Georgia Tech 52-21 on Saturday, meaning Pitt has scored at least 40 points in all five of the games they've played this year. Only one ACC program has done that before. Florida State's that program, and they've done it three different years. 1995, they did it. In the early 2000s, they did it. And most recently, they did it 11 straight games with Jameis Winston and company on their way to a national title in 2013. Another record broken. 14 touchdowns in the last three games for Kenny Pickett. That breaks Dan Marino's record for a three-game stretch in which he threw 13. B. Jeremy Chin, North Carolina football. Chin was second on the team in tackles yesterday. He suplexed this cowboy receiver. I forget which tight end it was. To the point where he fumbled the football. And it should have been a fumble. But the referee blew the whistle for forward progress. Which didn't make a lot of sense. You usually see the forward progress whistle. If somebody has their back to the tackler and they're being pushed back, or if they're in a large scrum, that's not what this was. It was a poor whistle, a poor call. It should have been a fumble, and it should have been forced by Jeremy Chin. He's also the only Panther yesterday that played every single defensive snap. So he's worthy of a B performance, even though Carolina's defense was not great altogether. As for the North Carolina Tar Heels, they blew out Duke. Sam Howe and Josh Downs, the great, the best combination in the ACC currently. I don't know if Downs is the best wide receiver, but the numbers reflect that. I don't know if you know this, Cole, but I'm a Blitnikoff voter, so I keep a pretty close eye on these things. Zay Flowers, very strong from Boston College. If he had better support and a better quarterback, then I think... He might be doing a lot of the same stuff we see from Downs. Uh, The outlook's pretty good, but the reason why it's a B for North Carolina, the O-line remains a problem. Sam Howell constantly having people in his face. They have to start their backup left tackle at center on Saturday. C. While we're talking about quarterback play, Sam Darnold a C, Clemson football a C. He had two more rushing touchdowns, so he leads the NFL in rushing touchdowns with five. It's the most for quarterback in the modern NFL through four games, five touchdowns, which is a funny thing to think of because of who was playing quarterback for the Panthers just two years ago. 65%, he exceeded that number. He was at 66 for the game, over 300 yards passing, but he did have those two turnovers. Two interceptions, threw it to Trayvon Diggs, who's the Chris Carter of corners now. All he does is catch interceptions every single game. 
You can't have those two picks. Plain and simple. So all those good things, they're kind of negated when you have those two big errors. So it's a C for Sam. As for Clemson, they look unimpressive, but they did beat an unbeaten BC team coming in. So that has to count for something. I know they were favored to win by a ton more. They they do deserve getting bumped out of the AP Top 25, in my opinion. But Clemson won the game. It's a C. It's a C win for Clemson. D. The Panthers O-line and NC State football. Panthers O-line allowed five sacks, and it could have been a lot more. Darnold was nifty, threw the ball away when he needed to, made some throws while he was going down to the ground. The O-line is a problem for Carolina, just like we thought it would be. I don't think that's something that's just going to get better as the weeks go forward. As for NC State, I thought Louisiana Tech would cover, but talking to some folks I know inside that building, they were able to reach players about how good Louisiana Tech is just based on Tech being up three touchdowns headed into the fourth quarter in Starkville, a place where NC State got bludgeoned a month ago. Didn't matter. They turned it over on downs up by two touchdowns at 27-13. That allowed for Tech to climb back into the game. It came down to a final play at the State 22 last minute of the game that the Wolfpack picked off, having to do so just to hold on. You're favored by 20-plus points. And you're just holding on for dear life against Louisiana Tech. I don't think NC State overlooked them. I think this was more about Louisiana Tech. And the Wolfpack just didn't look impressive coming off that Clemson game. So it's a D for the Wolfpack. But it can't be an F because you won the game. So I'll give the pack that. F. The Panthers pass rush. I'll limit it to the Panthers front seven. And Syracuse. Syracuse is pretty simple. You lost to Florida State. Florida State's first win of the year. Hughes had every opportunity to win that game. At the end, their offense began to sputter. Their next opponents, Wake Forest, in the Dome this Saturday. As for the Panther D, no sacks, and you allowed over 200 yards rushing. No TFLs even in the run game. That's unbelievable. If you were to tell me the Panthers D would get no sacks, and not even have a TFL and allow 200 yards rushing, I'd say Carolina loses that game by three, four touchdowns. Only lost by eight. Now, Dallas might have taken their foot off the break late, but the Panthers D, specifically the front seven, had a rough afternoon in Big D. And that's been this week's grades.